As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made In Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made In. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made In Cookware. Shop chef quality pots and pans at madeincookware.com. Do you need a safe space to learn how you can get your mind right? Then tune into Amani State of Mind, where host Dr. Amani and Meg Scoop break down mental illness and health through pop culture news and their very own experiences managing mental health. Take a deep breath, find your calm, and get into an Amani State of Mind with new episodes every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Pod Save the World. I'm Tommy Vitor. I'm Ben Rhodes. Where's your jet lag on a scale from zero to Bill Murray in Lost in Translation? <laughs> so I will say, as you get older, this gets harder. You oh, know? yeah. And so I got back from, uh, just to give you a little flavor of it, I got mm-hmm. back Friday night. Um, Sunday night, I fell asleep on the hardwood floor of my kid's bedroom mm-hmm. uh, after putting them to bed and woke up at 1230 and was up all day yesterday. Oh, that's tough. So imagine we can, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's pretty bad. That's like a 24-hour day. But today I'm fine. Today, you know, today, last night, I slept through the night, I'm fine. Well, good. Uh, welcome back. We got a great show to welcome you back, to welcome all the mm. listeners back, Ben. We're going to cover the latest news out of Ukraine, including the increasingly vocal criticisms of the war coming from within Russia, from Putin's allies. Yes. Uh, the chatter about the risk of nuclear weapons use. Very fun, light fun stuff chatter, there. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the election results in Brazil. Prisoner releases. Uh, Trickle-down economics gets humiliated in the United Kingdom. So sad to see it. A coup in Burkina Faso. Some shorter updates from around the world. And then... A fantastic interview that you really do not want to miss. I just talked with a friend of the pod, Yegi Rezaian, about the ongoing protests in Iran and the brave women leading them. Listeners might know her husband, Jason Rezaian, who wrote a great book called Prisoner about his time being unlawfully, unfairly, unjustly detained by the Iranian regime for 544 days. Yegi was held for 72 days. She was born and raised in Iran. She tangled with the so-called morality police several times herself. We talk about that. Uh, she was a journalist in Iran. We talked about how the detention of journalists. So just an uh, amazing interview. She had great advice, not only for Joe Biden and for the United States and Western countries, but also just average people about what they can do. I just got to say too, like in the, how many people, there's 7 billion people on earth. Mm-hmm. Yegi's in like the, you know, like the top 100 list of the 7 billion, like just as quality human being. I think that's know, right. Just like a light into any darkness. Yeah. Know? And by the way, just a quick summary for folks who want to know what her advice was. Basically, like talk about this stuff more, post on social media, uh, especially elected officials. Yeah. Iranians want to hear from you uh, about what's going on in support of the protesters. Yeah. I think, you know, what's interesting when things like this happen, because I'm hearing from some Iranians I know is like, we are all watching this and yeah. we're all moved by it. But People don't assume that. You, you don't know, know what like, to do or say. Yeah, or to, yeah. don't assume that people know you care. Yeah. You know, um, yeah. it's important advice. Yes, that's right. Uh, ben, a quick personal note. Um, the first episode of my podcast, World Corrupt, is coming out this weekend. It's about the 2022 World Cup in Qatar, how it was awarded corruptly by FIFA to a country with an abysmal human rights record and labor practices that have led to thousands of people being killed or forced to work in unsafe conditions. It's with a guy named Roger Bennett, who is the host of the Men and Blazers podcast. 
Uh, Maybe like the best title for a podcast. Great uh, title. There, yeah. Great title. Yeah. A soccer fanatic. Amazing guy. Um, it's going to come out on the uh, on the Pod Save the World feed. It'll also come out on the Crooked Media feed. I think it's like, it's kind of you're in my sweet spot in a lot of ways. We love yeah. that like World sports, corruption, yeah, yeah. corruption yeah, yeah. global politics overlap. I think listeners will like it a lot. We've done a lot of work on it. So please check it out. Yeah, check it out. I mean, it's, it's a great way into uh, both sports and politics and, you know, it, uh, uh, like you'll understand the world better. You should, if you're going to watch the World Cup, you have to listen to yeah, this before, so you know what's happening. We're not going to make you feel bad. We're no, going to give you, you some advice. We want you to watch the World Cup. Watch the World Cup by watch all World means, Cup. but understand what you're watching. Yeah, and when you're uh, when you're running around outside playing soccer with your friends, you might need some shoes. Yeah, how about that for yes. <laughs> transition? Yeah, you do. We at Crooked have a collaboration with Karyuma. We're making some some great shoes. Everyone needs shoes, and a portion of the proceeds from the sale of our shoes with Karyuma. Go to Vote Riders, which is helping people overcome voter ID laws across the country. So go to crooked.com slash kicks. Okay, Ben, let's talk about Ukraine. Because even as we were coming in here, yeah. the, the story's changing. News is coming fast and furious. Fast and furious today. So the Ukrainian military is making rapid progress in their effort to push Russians out of eastern Ukraine, the Russian military. We talked a few weeks ago about the shocking breakthroughs that happened in northeastern Ukraine. Now the Ukrainians are making major advances in southern Ukraine, despite the fact that those were the positions that have been reinforced by the Russian military. Ukrainian military analysts say they've been targeting the Russian supply lines in southeastern Ukraine and are close to cutting off about 25,000 Russian soldiers and forcing them to either retreat or get encircled. So that sounds very bad. This for the is, Russians. Very yeah, very bad for the Russians. Yeah, yeah. This is all happening as Putin is claiming to annex territory that is being recaptured like as he speaks by Ukrainian forces. And the reality of the war is really breaking through within Russia. Putin admitted mistakes were made during his mobilization effort, their draft effort. He said that men who were wrongly drafted will get sent home. That came after, I think, something like 17 attacks on military recruitment centers and government buildings were reported since the mobilization He's firing generals left and right, one of whom uh, came under fierce criticism by Ramzan Kadyrov, who's a Putin stooge who runs Chechnya. Um, Kadyrov was like blasting nepotism in the Russian military, and he said the commander of the region should be stripped of his medals and sent to the front lines. So like, let's pause there, Ben. I'm just curious, what do you make of Putin giving these increasingly inflammatory speeches? It was just like big propaganda event in Red Square while seemingly allowing or maybe just not being able to prevent this like open criticism of how badly things are going. Yeah, there's so much going on here. First of all, uh, I guess this is a plug, but like um, we had a couple weeks on uh, Ilya Panamarenko, who's uh, mm -hmm. uh, the defense uh, correspondent for the Kiev Independent. That interview, he basically described exactly what's happening He laid now. it all out. He yeah. laid it all out. So go back, even if you listen to it the first time, because I could repeat what well, I'll repeat a summary, but like he walks methodically through the case for how Ukraine can militarily defeat Russia. And what he described is it, literally like precisely what's happening now. He said that, that after the offensive in the north and the offensive in the south will cut off Russian supply lines and circle those troops. But the reason it's useful to think about it as you know, if you're not a military expert like most of us aren't, uh, is that. What he's describing is that Ukraine doesn't need to, like, literally conquer every inch of territory that Russia has. What they can basically do is strategically encircle the remaining Russian forces exactly. and then just pulverize them. Like take you know? rail hubs and yeah, stuff. Yeah, and just cut them off from each other and then use the U.S.-provided uh, artillery um, and, and their own higher morale to just 
just eviscerate the Russian forces. And that is what's happening. It, so these are not just gains. They're gains with like a real military purpose, right? Um, and it's notable to, to get your question is like Putin clearly realized a few weeks ago after the northern offensive that this isn't going well. And he's basically been on an offensive to try to reverse as best he can the momentum. So the mobilization and throwing new bodies at this, the annexation to try to create facts on the ground, yeah. you know, de facto Russian control politically of this territory, this PR offensive, this kind of stupid event he did in front of the Kremlin with like some Nazis and some rock bands it's and like stuff. like genuinely crazy people. Yeah, crazy shit. And it, it's really notable that since Putin has launched, you know, kind of his counteroffensive, it's just, it's like a house of cards coming down in yeah. Ukraine. Like it they, seems like it's unraveling. They can't stop the bleeding. The new troops are not getting there fast enough and they're not equipped. They have shitty morale. So that's compounding the problems he already has. And, you know, if you look at the the issue in, in the Russian public, like one way to think about this is what 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 does sustain the Putin regime? You know, there's the military, there's the kind of FSB, you know, former KGB type yeah. security services, there are the oligarchs, and then there's the kind of nationalism that he himself has stirred up yeah. as legitimacy. It's like corruption and nationalism. Yeah. And the reality is if you look at that, the only one that you could say today Putin can really count on is the FSB security services types, right? Because the military, well, those guys can't be very happy. They're you know? all getting blamed like, for They're all this getting disaster. blamed. They're getting fired. There are units where their men are getting uh, eviscerated. Um, then the oligarchs, you know, they're not losing all their money, but like life has gotten harder for them than it was before. They can't be very happy about this war. But then importantly, as you say, Putin rode the back of the tiger in empowering all these rabid, you know, Nazi propagandists. Um, and they're turning uh, on the war effort because because they're more hawkish. Than, yeah. than, you know. I used to wonder if they were like there to give him space to move to the right. But now it seems like they're just going after yeah, him. It's a, it's like he, yeah, he's lost control of the, the nutcases that he brought into the tent. And so that this is a real problem for him. You know, um, I mean, to illustrate this, like, an equal number of Russians have moved to Kazakhstan. I saw this. Uh, yeah, Max Seddon tweeted had this, right? right? From, from the FT. 200,000 Russians have been called up. 200,000 Russians are in Kazakhstan. To right? one country. To one country, right? And and so so this whole thing is getting really dicey. That the, the, They cannot reverse the military picture, but they also can't reverse the political picture, right? He, he, he can't, in trying to fire up the Russian people... The, the people who are most fired up about this war are pissed about it, and everybody else is pissed about the mobilization. He's really isolated. And I'm not saying, like, you know, Putin's going to go tomorrow. But for the first time in this war, like, he, he can't escape the consequences. Yeah, it looks bad. Um, I saw there was a major prisoner swap that happened. 215 Ukrainians were swapped for 55 Russians, some, like, Putin friend. Uh, 10 foreign nationals, including two Americans who gave an interview to the Washington Post that talked about how they were tortured. It was pretty harrowing. Kadyrov is saying he wants to send his teenage kids to war, like 16-year-olds. Uh, sure, buddy. Uh, believe it when I see it. But Ben, I mean, I think the increasing desperation for Putin is increasing chatter about whether or not Russia might use a nuclear weapon. And so, like, what, why don't we quickly just talk about the range of options Putin might be considering? This was laid out in an op-ed by a friend of the pod, Joe Strunzion. 
It's a sobering piece in the Washington Post. So like one option Joe talks about is Putin could just detonate a nuclear weapon over some uninhabited area, the Black Sea, just to yeah. show they're serious to get the West to back down to freak everybody out. Some scientists apparently in the Manhattan Project push for the U.S. to do this instead of bombing Japanese cities. Uh, another option includes like a low yield nuclear weapon, one that would like kill thousands of people, devastate a target, but be some sort of fraction of the nuclear yield or the power of the weapons dropped on Hiroshima or Nagasaki. There's an even smaller version of that called a tactical nuclear weapon, which could be maybe one thousandth of the yield of those World War II era nukes, but would t clearly terrorize everybody. And then there are far more catastrophic options, like a massive nuclear strike on Kiev to like decapitate yeah. the government, an attack on NATO forces. The conventional wisdom, which hopefully is right, seems to be that Putin is smart enough to realize that those latter two options would lead to probably losing support from India or China and then just like a massive NATO response. So hopefully they're off the table. But with that uplifting introduction, the White House is saying they're privately warning Russia about the consequences of a nuclear strike. They won't detail that publicly, but they... Uh, Jake Sullivan said repeatedly they've done it. Curious what you make uh, of that strategy, the increased chatter, and just general anxiety about nuclear use. You're seeing people say like, well, maybe now there's a 10% chance of it happening, which, which is wildly way high. too high. Yeah. So first of all, I, yeah, I think we're already in new territory because you know essentially the doctrine of the Soviet Union then Russia, you know, was the kind of ambiguous like if 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 the state was threatened, you know. Um, nuclear weapons around the table to defend the existential survival of Russia. He's already just in his declaratory statements um, loosened the norm around, you know, when you consider using nuclear weapons and obviously tying it potentially to defending annexed territory. This is yeah. new. Like this is, this is to, to take it seriously. This has never happened in the nuclear age where, well, it's happened, but like this is, uncomfortably recent <laughs> and that it was uh, within the last few days, uh, you know, he, he's he's introducing um, nuclear weapons as a part of his strategy for this war. Whether he uses them or not, it's already part of strategy because he wants it in the heads of the Ukrainians. He wants it in the heads of NATO. Um, and that's dangerous because, you know, obviously if he uses them, he's breaking a taboo. But like, Normal, normal is the the world has spent a lot of decades trying to create a norm against threatening the use of nuclear weapons and against nuclear weapons kind of being kind of a part of of warfare, right? And and so you look at other hotspots around the world: India, Pakistan, North Korea, potentially Iran. Like you just don't want to be in a new world where suddenly, like the use of of smaller nuclear weapons or tactical nuclear weapons is somehow like a part of the playbook. No, no. Um, I think, unfortunately, like, you know, you have to take it somewhat seriously, like the tactical nuclear weapon thing, right? The like loading it into uh, a rocket and firing it at an advancing Ukrainian uh, military column. Like if, you know, if, if, if Putin is com completely cornered, it's hard to say what he'd do. And that is scary, right? Very. Um, um, that we, we have to, to take it seriously in that way. I think in terms of, like, what do you do in response? Like, first of all, I do think that in addition to the U.S. warnings, which I get to in a second, like you would hope, and I, I, I assume the administration is doing this, that that like China, like a Xi Jinping, is telling Putin, "Don't do this," right? Yeah, you uh, Like, like more likely to listen to to that guy than to us, um, and so you want to make sure that 
diplomatically, Putin is hearing from everybody, including people who are kind of closer to him or people who are friendly to him, like the Chinese, that this could be a complete game changer for Russia generally. Uh, you also hope or wonder whether or not there are people in the nuclear chain of command in Russia who are beginning to think about, like, do I really want to carry out the order? Because it's not like Putin can go fire the nuclear weapon himself, right? I mean, right? it could be a death sentence for the people involved. Yeah, you know, and so, uh, like, you know, you want it in, in their heads, too, because, it, you know, in, in some scenario, like uh, like him giving that order could actually hasten his demise because people would be like, this is, this we're not doing crazy. this, this guy's Lost crazy, it, yeah. you know, we, we need to remove him. Um, in the awful contingency of what the U.S. does in response, you know, I, I think people should, and you saw Dave Petraeus out there, speaking for himself, by the way, I yeah. think, like, it, people should not assume that, Petraeus is speaking for the Biden administration, but I think what he's right about, you know, he said, well, the U.S. could destroy the Russian fleet in the Black Sea and kind of destroy the Russian military conventionally in Ukraine. That's true. Like, that's the far end of what we could do. I think the thing that is likely is the U.S. would probably not respond to a limited use of nuclear weapons in Ukraine with nuclear weapons and we're in World War III. But I do think a conventional military response is, is quite likely. It you seems know? quite likely. Um, and if not that, I think you'd see a, a, a big uh, escalation of the types of military equipment given to the Ukrainian forces and maybe less of a concern about restrictions on, say, like missiles that can hit within Russia. Yeah, yeah. The, the, I think every, like, don't know how you could argue for those guardrails once a nuclear no, weapon's we, been used. We're in an entirely new world. Um, if they even if he uses a tactical nuclear weapon, so you know, I wish I had like better news on this. <laughs> you know, like I, I, I just think it's something that has to be taken seriously. Um, you know, there, there's temp, the temptation I, I, I see sometimes is like, well, this is why the Ukrainians should just like make peace and well. If threatening nuclear weapons is your pathway to successfully annexing, an, you know, part of another country, then we are also in a new world in which more countries will want to obtain nuclear weapons and more countries might go to war thinking they can use their nuclear weapons to threaten countries to, you know, that's not a good outcome no, either. Right? No one wants so, to be there. Um, uh, you know, I, I think that, look, I mean, Putin is a real cornered individual right now and it's getting worse for him. Um, and, and these types of threats could go up. But I think... The risk for Putin, people should be aware, is real too, because the more he's dialing this up and it seems like nuclear war is now a rising probability, 10%, you mentioned, the China, the Russian military, the, the, you know, the elements that Putin relies on, I have to think, um, are, are more likely to you know, maybe think that this whole thing is not worth it. You know? Yeah. And, th and there's no doubt the Ukrainians are going to continue to press this offensive in every way they possibly can. So who knows what this conversation will be like a week from now. There could be more territory and, you know, frankly, more humiliation for Putin as territory he just announced as being part of the Russian Federation is now completely out of his control and back under Ukrainian control. We'll see. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why they're moving so fast. You know, they, they, there's a kind of urgency. I, I think it's worth saying that, like, you you alluded to this a bit in your comments, but like they, they don't even know. It's not only that they don't control the territory that was annexed. When they were asked what actual territory they annexed, they couldn't even answer the question. Like the Russian officials, like Peskov, like well the spokesperson. So this shows you that like that nobody knows what is in Putin's head. You no, know? no, no.
As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made in Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made in. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made in Cookware. Shop chef-quality pots and pans at madeincookware.com. Vacations are always good. Sometimes they're even great. And Celebrity Cruises is about to ruin all of that. Because once you explore with us, you'll never want a vacation any other way. And with new Quick Caribbean Escapes, you'll never want a weekend any other way either. Celebrity Cruises. Nothing comes close. Visit Celebrity.com, call 1-800-CELEBRITY, or contact your travel advisor. Ships Registry, Malta and Ecuador. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. Okay, well, uh, after that uplifting segment, let's turn to Brazil, Ben, because there's a major election on Sunday. Uh, they voted in a presidential contest that has huge consequences for, obviously, the Brazilian people, but also, you know, the health of democracy globally and efforts to combat climate change. This election pitted, oh, there are a bunch of candidates in this one, but the major candidates were the right-wing authoritarian president of Brazil currently, uh, Jair Bolsonaro, and then the former president, uh, a leftist populist named Lula da Silva, the results are that there will be another election, unfortunately, because neither candidate got 50% of the vote. Lula got around 48.5%. Bolsonaro got about 43%. The outcome sucks for many reasons, but it, it was disappointing and unexpected because opinion polls showed Lula cruising to victory, maybe by double digits. Bolsonaro had been out there arguing that his support was uh, was being undercounted by pollsters. Turns out he was right. Now they have to do it all over again, uh, turn out the voters again, and then both sides will try to win the votes of the 10 million or so Brazilians who voted for candidates who will not be part of the runoff or people who didn't vote. So not great. Uh, observers are also worried about Bolsonaro baselessly declaring there was voter fraud if he loses. You heard Bernie Sanders talk to Ben about that last week. You could have a, a very tense situation spill over into uh, political violence, which no one wants to see. You got right-wing pundits in the U.S. pouring gas on the fire, pushing voter fraud claims already. So, um, you know, Ben, also the, with conservative candidates in Brazil did well in local elections. Bolsonaro's party gained seats in Congress. I don't want to make some like facile comparison from the U.S. and in Brazil, but it is weird to see. Uh, no, it's a good like, comparison. A polling miss yeah, and yeah, like you know yeah. the right-wing populist party do better in these local elections, just like 2020. Curious what you made of the results, the polling miss, the thoughts uh, ahead of the October 30th runoff, which we'll obviously be covering. So I, I think, first of all, you know, we've talked about the danger of like success begetting success or momentum. I don't want to overstate this either, um, but I think it bears noting that if you look at the kind of right wing, you know, global international um there was a lot of reference to the Italian election, like, mm -hmm. you know, let's go, let's keep this going. Brazil's up next. Like, Bannon sure. was saying that, sure. right? Like, first Italy, then Brazil. 
and you do wonder, I, I'm not saying it had a huge impact on voting behavior in Brazil, but it, it certainly did, you know, once you see like one, you know, neo-fascist get in or semi-fascist, as Joe Biden would say, um, you, you know, it, it does- You can believe it could happen. It does seem to put a little wind in the sails. Yep. I, I, like the polling thing is super interesting because Lula was up kind of generally 10 points, up to 15 points in some polls. So there there was- like a, an overperformance for Bolsonaro or an underperformance for Lula. Except with Trafalgar. You know, they had it dead even. Yeah, hey, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, Terrible yeah, political yeah, nerd yeah, joke. Yeah. Fast forward to uh, it. Yeah, get, get Favreau in here to break it down in the polls. But the, the uh, um, but he, let's keep in mind that Lula still got like six million more votes than yeah, Bolsonaro. Yeah, he won. Yeah, I mean, he, he you know. got more votes. And, and so you have to see him as a front runner going forward. I think what you do worry about is that Bolsonaro having overperformed in this you know, poll is probably feeling pretty full of himself. And this might actually increase the likelihood that if it's a closer result and, you know, for him to kind of do the play of like, yeah. this is fraud and it was stolen from me. And did you see he's ramping up this program? He's already started to give low income people basically like a $115 check. Yeah. He's pulling that all forward to make it happen in advance of the elections, sort of use the power of the state to help him get supporters. Yeah. No and, surprise. And part of what you see in that in the map that breaks down the, the results is something, again, like similar to the U.S., like rural areas, you know, um, places where he overperformed, um, let's just say, lower information voters, mm -hmm. you know, um, or people who may be more ripe for, you know, the kind of appeals that he makes. Um, so there was a lot to be concerned about, but the basic structure that, you know, Lula is likely to be the winner is still there. It's just that he may be the winner of a more polarized country than we thought. Because what you'd want to see is, as we won in 2020, like a, a repudiation of Bolsonaro, like a 15-point right. win. The closer it is, the more likely Bolsonaro is to challenge it. Um, and the more likely it is that Brazil is dealing with some dysfunction in its politics, even if they somehow avoid the coup. I should note that Bernie's resolution that we talked about last week did pass the Senate, so that's mm -hmm. good. Um, but it just means I, I think that, like, again, like here, um, even if they can dodge the bullet and Lula can win this election, um, you know, it's going to be, you know, some ongoing turmoil in Brazilian politics, which has kind of been the norm in Brazilian politics, but still not great. Yeah. Well, Bernie had that resolution. And then I saw uh, Donald Trump filmed an endorsement video of Bolsonaro from his like private jet. So that's wonderful. Yeah. I'm glad we're helping yeah, out all yeah, around I'm the world. Yeah. Sticking in the region, Ben. So well, part, partly in the region, there were a couple interesting reports over the weekend about prisoner exchanges. One was in Iran. Iran released an Iranian-American man uh, on furlough who had been held captive since 2015. And then in Venezuela, seven Americans who had been held for years were released uh, in exchange for the U.S. granting clemency to two nephews of President Nicolas Maduro's wife who were in jail uh, for narcotics convictions. And I wanted to flag this because obviously like it, great news when somebody's wrongly detained gets out of jail, especially sort of poignant given that uh, the Yegi resigned was on the show today. Biden and his team, I think, deserve credit for increasing their focus on these hostage issues, but also because um, these prisoner exchanges can be often part of sort of confidence building measures between adversaries that can show or mark the beginning of a larger rapprochement. Um, the U.S. has been talking with Iran about getting into the JCPOA for a long time. Uh, a Biden and a C official traveled to Caracas back in March for meetings there. Did you read any tea leaves into either of these reports? 
I guess the only thing I'd say, first of all, like the, the, there's this kind of now normalization of prisoner exchanges. Like they're not as big a deal as they used to be. Yeah. So Marco Rubio got mad, but like, yeah, who well, cares? You know, he's always mad. About something. The Florida politics yeah. will not be good on this. It is what it is. I mean, that's just projection for how he feels about himself. It, but, very um, much true. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's good and bad, right? It's good that people are coming home and that there's not insane stuff like, you know, we had to deal with when we helped get Jason out. But um, it is, you know, it does raise these questions and I support it. I, and I supported it when we did the exchange in the Obama years. Um, but of like the ongoing issue of whether people then grab Americans for leverage, that that's a g- genuine thing to debate. Um, I, I think with Venezuela, what's interesting to read some tea leaves, I mean, in a way, when the U.S. like de-recognized uh, Maduro under Trump and recognized um, Juan Guaido and and you had General Rubio tweeting from the Colombian border about mm-hmm. a coup, um, you know, when you don't recognize a government, you don't make deals with them. And whether the Biden administration intended to or not, you know, you, you are kind of saying like there's – it's not diplomatic recognition formally, but you just made an, an agreement with this government. You you're know? recognizing reality, and, 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 certainly. Yeah, and, and what you're doing is you're part of what you're testing. And th- we did this with the Cubans in, in the Cuba opening that, that I worked on. You know, will they follow through on their commitment? And so sometimes when this is your thing about confidence building, when you just you implement a prisoner exchange, it does actually demonstrate, OK, they they can say they'll do something and then do it. And they can see that we'll say we'll do something and then we do it. And try this with the Taliban too. Yeah, exactly. And that that can be the beginning of, of, of incremental increased diplomatic exchanges on other issues. Like, can you take this confidence building to other areas, you know, where we have concerns? Um, and at the same time, the U.S. kind of key regional ally on its Venezuela policy has always been Colombia. The new leftist Colombian president, Petro, um, shifted their Venezuela policy and kind of re-recognized, you know, the Maduro government and Tony Blinken was just down in Colombia. And so I have to think that there's just space to at least explore whether there's some diplomatic way to begin to address the political and humanitarian crisis in Venezuela. Um, Sure hope so. um, You know, it it would be a long road, but if, if you could at least begin to try to improve the humanitarian situation and then begin to try to address political questions... Um, you know, whether it's some kind of effort to have unity government or pathway to election. Um, I'm not suggesting that's easy, but sometimes a prisoner exchange can lead to something else. Sometimes it doesn't. But like certainly more so than at any time in recent years, um, given the changing politics in Latin America and in Colombia, um, you know, th- this is something to watch. Yeah. Well, let's let's hope there's some progress there because the humanitarian situation is, is horrible in Venezuela. And yeah. also... Yeah. The, the Florida becoming like a right-wing, rabid Ron DeSantis state honestly makes this easier, hopefully, right? I, I think Florida's gone politically, so let's stop worrying about what 200,000 right-wing Venezuelans think or, or will say about an obviously broken policy. I'm not saying we should like coddle Maduro, but like, has, is the sanctions, are they working? Does anyone think this no. is working? <laughs> well, the, the, no. I mean, everything in that Trump policy has failed. Like, Maduro is more entrenched in power China and Russia have more influence in Venezuela. There's more humanitarian suffering. And by the way, more people coming to our border. It should be noted, like what is so cynical about what people like Ron DeSantis do is they support these hardline sanctions forward policies in Cuba and Venezuela. 
that then failed to solve the problem and lead to mass exodus of Cubans and Venezuelans yeah. to the U.S. so that Ron DeSantis can take Venezuelans and put them on the plane of Martha's Vineyard. Exactly. So, like, he's simultaneously perversely helping his immigration politics by increasing the border crisis through the foreign policy he supports. And we should just name that because yep. that's, yep. that's the play. They're not trying to solve Venezuela and Cuba and places like that or Central America for that matter. They're, they're trying to make it worse so that more people come to the border so they can blame Democrats. They want the issue. Yeah. They want the issue. Uh, let's turn to the UK, Ben, because we have a, a Tory party cleanup on aisle three. Uh, on Monday, Al <laughs> yeah. one, two, and three, <laughs> and three. Yeah, maybe all ten of them. Liz Truss and the Conservative uh, Party walked back part of its shockingly stupid uh, tax plan. The piece of it that would have cut taxes for the highest earners, taking them from forty-five percent to forty percent. This came after Truss's broader economic plan was so badly received by literally everyone in the world that the Bank of England had to step in to prevent a financial crisis. And there was a revolt from conservative party lawmakers at their little convention thingy who worried that basically they'd get destroyed uh, the next time they were up for election. I think there's some polls that came out that showed labor like double digit lead ahead. Oh, but yeah, first, yeah. First time in a long More time. More than that, yeah. Ben, so here's my question for you. As former Prime Minister Boris Johnson watches this unfold, and plots his return. Do you think he's partying more or less than he did during <laughs> yeah. the COVID lockdown? This I, could not be going better for him. Yeah, it, it could not be overstated how catastrophic this is. Like Liz Trust almost tanked the entire global marketplace uh, with this announcement. The pound was going below the dollar. The, the Bank of England had to intervene to bail out the British government's plan. I mean, just a fucking catastrophe. It's also like an interesting, like American tax cut policy is just as insane. Yes. It's just that America is so big and like uh, the dollar and our bond market is so fundamental to the global economy that you can't like have this kind of like run on well, I, uh, the dollar. That I, there are some like economic nerds who wonder whether what just happened was a seminal moment because yeah. for decades we've had central banks stepping in and messing with interest rates yeah. or doing quantitative easing or tightening and it solved the problem. This time the Bank of England stepped in and it didn't work. Yeah. And that is real scary stuff. It's scary, but it, it's funny. It's like America's, it, it, we're so big that we can be more irresponsible. That's um, true. You can print more money, yeah. Yeah, exactly. But like, I, I, so it, it's nice to see this just trickle down uh, philosophy be so thoroughly humiliated. I mean, you're right. That is a seminal moment that that happened. It, it, I think it also is like the final wake up call to the United Kingdom about what a deep hole they're in. Like they've been, a, you know, the the distraction around Boris and all the, you know, like between Brexit and some shitty policy and not having uh, you know, serious people in charge, like they have a big hole to get out of. Yeah, and she trouble. just il illustrated that hole, like, because the hole doesn't allow them to do things like this. I think politically, to your point, like, Liz Truss is probably not going to be as wild as it sounds, given that there have been, what, like four Tory prime ministers in, fi in five years and... um she she's probably not going to be the candidate in the next election. We'll, you know, yeah, we'll I think see. they're going to dump her overboard and, and they have to have an election in the next couple of years. But like, it doesn't seem like she's got a grip on that part. I also think the guy who they made chancellor of the exchequer, I'm forgetting his name right now. He, he's like a, you know, rabid supply side economic He guy. seems like a guy who should not like, he seems like the guy who like you want in your right wing think tank, but like you don't For want to sure. actually in charge of something. Yeah. And I think he rolled out this plan and then went to some party, like a champagne yeah. toast with a bunch of bankers. Yeah, he's like the idea. Grover Norquist of, of the UK. And, you know, <laughs> and, yeah. and like, obviously Liz Truss, she's prime minister, right? She's, she's 
clearly good at politics on some level. She's been a survivor in the government for, for many, many years. But I listened to a bunch of local radio interviews she did last week. Someone on Twitter compiled them. Yeah. She had like all the BBC, you know, BBC locals, whales, yeah, this, whatever. Yeah, yeah. The questions were withering, yeah. absolutely withering. And she was just on the talking points, unable to pivot. It was disastrous. Well, you make this point all the time and it can't be stressed enough. She was not elected anything, right? It's so like, yeah, one hundred sixty thousand people. Yeah, in this party insane system, at least Boris Johnson won an election. Like so, Boris Johnson runs as the candidate for prime minister. They get a majority. Imagine being British and like here's this lady who like wasn't elected prime minister by anybody except the, the Tory party membership. And suddenly she's tanking your mortgage. It'll be like us, our president just winning CPAC. Well, I guess that kind of happens anyway. Well, yeah, and it's but it's completely fucked over ordinary people because it, it's fucked with their mortgages. Because yeah. like the, the British people don't have thirty year fixed mortgages, so it kind of floats with things. And like so, even with the U turn she made, people are fucked. You know, yeah, and, and they're right. They're rolling out these energy subsidies to help people pay for higher natural gas costs thanks to the war. And yet the economic changes they put forward that jacked up interest rates made mortgages more expensive than the difference. Yeah. They made life worse for everybody. And then she tried the whole old like Putin's price hike uh, hashtag, you know. <laughs> hey, she, let, she, let, yeah, let me export yeah, some warmed over yeah, rhetoric to you. Yeah. She was like, uh, in all those BBC interviews, she kept trying to blame Putin for her tax policy. I'm like, what the fuck is going <laughs> what are you on? Talking you know? about? Yeah. yeah, not good. I did hear that the, the British government are about to do a two-year inquiry of their handling of COVID. So that actually seems like a pretty good idea. Like pandemic preparedness, yeah. like big look back, you know. I do wonder, you're right, like whether Boris tries to make a comeback to be the guy that stands for the next election. You, you can know? totally see it and it yeah. probably will work. Uh, okay, let's turn to Burkina Faso, Ben, because you, you were- This is a wild story. Tweeting up a storm yeah. about this over yeah. the weekend. So <laughs> there was a second coup in the West African country of Burkina Faso in less than a year. Not good. The backstory is back in January, uh, an army officer named Lieutenant Colonel Demiba took power in a military coup. He wrote a wave of anger about the country's inability to deal with Islamist militants in the country. On Sunday, Demiba was officially ousted by uh, Captain Ibrahim Terore, who will now be the president until a transitional leader is named. Things have maybe, been looking maybe. right. <laughs> yeah, 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 maybe, yeah. maybe. Things looked real scary for a couple of days uh, over the weekend when Demiba uh, refused to back down. The, you know, people out there might be like an open civil war in the cities. Uh, the new coup leaders, interestingly, are denouncing the French who ruled Burkina Faso as a colony until the 60s, 1960. Uh, and they say now they want to ally with Russia instead. I saw that the head of the Wagner Group, horrible mercenaries who we talk about often in the Ukraine context, praised the coup leaders. So I don't know. The step back here is no one knows who this new transitional, maybe wink, wink president is, but this is going to be bad news for the millions of people who just want like the violence to stop. He was like an artillery captain too. This is not like, like he was General yeah, like Eisenhower. Storm and Norman Schwarzkopf yeah, taking yeah. the reins. No. I, I mean, no, I mean, it, it, it's, um, yeah, I, I think it's, it's noteworthy because interestingly, terrorism has fallen off our radar to some extent, you know, because the terrorist threat has been reduced to the United States and groups like Al-Qaeda have been pretty much put out of business and ISIS is on its back foot. But in certain parts of the world, particularly in West Africa, there are roiling insurgencies and jihadist groups that have created a lot of chaos and that have become the pretext for these coups. And I think part of what is so worrying is, you know, second coup in Burkina Faso. There have been a number of coups in West Africa in recent years, which, you know, generally had been more stable. And it's for a bunch of factors. And by the way, one of the factors that, you know, we should own up to as former Obama officials is 
the war in Libya mm-hmm. um, kind of like became this magnet for jihadists. Fighters and, then, and weapons. Then they just, it's like whack-a-mole. They move around, you know, Nigeria and then into West Africa. Um, and, and and there's, the, the French had been in the lead in dealing with it. But to your point, like the French become the punching bag because of the colonial history. Well-deserved. Uh, yeah, well-deserved, except I don't necessarily, like their cast is like the hidden hand behind everything. And the, That's true, uh, yeah. You know, the, the, so I, I don't think, know that to be true. Yeah, so I, I do think there needs to be like a more concerted policy response from, you know, the U.S. and France and other countries and the U.N. working with ECOWAS, which is the regional organization there, Nigeria, which is the big biggest country in the region. Like th- th- there has to be an eff- like a concerted effort to try to stabilize the political circumstances to figure out the pipeline of security assistance, but also to like be working in a development nexus where you can. Um, and, and, and look, the Wagner Group, though, those guys are sending every warm body they have uh, to eastern Ukraine. So... I'm not sure that they're the same bet that they might have been two years ago to be the the muscle, the mercenary group. Sa- same for the Iranian regime. Yeah. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. Like they might be looking for backing from the Russians right about now if they can't, you know, put down these protesters. And yeah. I just don't think it's going to be there. Yeah. So a knock-on effect of what the Ukrainians are doing is might actually be like a reduction in Russia's capacity to to be the goons that prop up coup leaders in places like Burkina Faso. Yeah. And then real quick, Ben, you flagged that uh, the... The current president of Uganda, General Museveni, and his son was tweeting stuff about announcing an invasion of Kenya. Bobby Wine, who we've had on the show, who's an incredibly inspiring singer, uh, opposition leader, I think political prisoner is yeah, probably the best way to describe yeah, him right now, yeah. tweeting about what a nightmare this is. But uh, one one to watch, I guess. Yeah, I had, I had some eccentric uh, flags over the weekend. But th- 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 this is one to watch because Museveni, right, who's been you know governing... Uganda is a, a dictator for, for a long time and, frankly, a U.S.-friendly yeah. dictator, um, has been elevating the son of his to higher-level military positions. And so when he's, like, tweeting, you know, we're going to invade Kenya, we're coming to Nairobi, I'm just going to pick out what part of Kenya I'm going to live in after we conquer you, maybe that's his idea of a joke. It's yeah. not that Let's funny. See, like, the Don um, Jr. But Uganda, again, a big country, like, been central to um, – U.S. policy, uh, like in, in, in a way that I think redounds poorly on the U.S. commitment to democracy. Um, yeah, this is one to watch because Museveni is getting old, and what the succession plan is there, and, you know, um, it's a little worrying when the guy who might be part of the succession plan is is threatening to invade like a the most important country in East. Not Africa, ideal. You know? Not ideal. Uh, a couple quicker things to close, which uh, I'll warn you in advance, I'll suck. North Korea fired a ballistic missile uh, over Japan for the first time since 2017. That went over about as well as you'd expect, terrified millions of people. The missile landed 2,000 miles east of Japan. It's the 23rd North Korean weapons test this year. The U.S. and South Korea responded by bombing some random uninhabited island in the region. I think they just had some joint exercises before that. It just, unfortunately, Ben, seems like we're going to fall into another cycle, you know, the third decade in of threats, escalations, sanctions that go nowhere while North Korean people starve, while there's no progress uh, in any sort of, you know, interpeninsula rapprochement. So stay tuned for that, especially if the North Koreans conduct another nuclear test. Yeah, I mean, no, nothing to add on the test. What I would say is that, like, North Korea is, bears watching 
some of this is right. There's a major geopolitical event that takes attention away from them and they want attention. They want to test out some new missile. But also there have been these reports of the North Koreans are going to provide artillery to Russia. There's like a bizarre report that the North Koreans had offered like 100,000 troops to go fight in Ukraine like in Asian media, you know. But I only raise that not because I think they're going to send 100,000 troops to Ukraine, but when there's a big war, like there is in Ukraine, you kind of look where could it spread or how, like not Iran, North Korea as these kind of Russia-friendly rogue states, mm-hmm. like both in their own way in some form of trouble. I just, you know, if you look at the history of how wars become like world wars or bigger conflicts, it's usually when like a war starts and it's not going well for somebody and then somebody gets pulled in something else gets somebody else gets pulled in so i just worry about the way in which north korea is going to interact with the whole russia situation <laughs> yeah, yeah it probably will not be helpful yeah i'm reading a great book about uh kim jong-un right now by anna fifield uh she was with the ft for a while i think covered the white house well it's called the the great successor the secret rise and rule of kim jong-un recommend it uh ben uh another awful story out of indonesia where 125 soccer fans were killed when police fired tear gas at fans who had run onto the fields. That led to panic. People tried to get out through these narrow exits. They were crushed. They were trampled. Horrible stuff. The government says uh, they're going to set up a commission to investigate. Another really dark one is that officials in Haiti say cholera has returned to the country. Seven people have died, but the disease killed 10,000 people after an outbreak in 2010 that was linked to uh, the uh, earthquake relief efforts from the UN. Also comes as Haiti is dealing with gang violence, fuel shortages, and just the worst conditions imaginable. So, yeah, terrible stories. The Indonesian one, I mean, to me, the headline of that is like they have serious policing problems. Serious, like, uh, yeah. Their their first response to like some soccer violence is to like tear gas a bunch of people and bunch basically kids. create this dynamic that leads to all this death. So if anything good can come out of this is hopefully some policing reform in Indonesia. Yeah, we'd like to see it. Uh, last story before the interview. Um, thousands of people in northeastern Spain got together, went to a stadium, and they tried to construct the highest possible towers of human beings. I don't know if you've seen these photos. These guys literally climb on top of each other. They stand on each other's shoulders. It's this like centuries old tradition in Catalonia. The winning team won over 15 grand. They built a 43-foot human tower. But I do assume that the real goal of the competition is to make uh, running with the bulls seem less stupid. Because I can't imagine doing <laughs> uh, this. Would you want to be the guy the 43 feet up? You know? No. Um, 13 people went to the hospital. I, I mean, what kind of planning goes into it? You know, I, I it just, looks like there, a lot. The rehearsals, like, uh, like who? <laughs> the, the the post had a long story. In this, there's a there's a section of the tower that's called a trunk, which I don't know if that's what the um, the Tribune Co. people were going for when they renamed their institution. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. There's there, there's some traditions that sometimes you have to rethink. Yeah, you know, some you know. good ones, but maybe it's a good time. I mean, people, I love Catalonia. Like they're some of the most wonderful people on earth, but. This is a little eccentric. It's, it's a little this, there, there's some weird stuff. Like, I'm on. I have Southern Europe on the brain because of Catalonia. But like, there's that race in Italy where the, it's like this bareback horse race. Have you seen this? It's like totally insane. No. Yeah. Like, there's just it's been going on for like a thousand years. Like, there, there's some stuff like from the Middle Ages. It's <laughs> probably like you know should have been retired a while ago. Hard bitten. Yeah. Hey, like, but maybe it's fun. I mean, maybe we'd all be happier if we did human periods. Next year, uh, we'll go. Yeah. Uh, okay, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, you will hear my interview with Yegi Rezaian about the ongoing protests in Iran uh, and the brave women leading them. So stick around for that. 
Ask Sherwin-Williams and get 30% off Duration and Super Deck products May 17th through the 20th. That means 30% off our most popular color family, blue. Psychologists have found it to be soothing and relaxing, which makes it especially great for bedrooms and bathrooms. And of course, get 30% off all of our other colors. Shop the sale online or visit your neighborhood Sherwin-Williams store. Click the banner to learn more. Retail sales only. Some exclusions apply. See store for details. Hey, everyone. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for up to half the cost. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up! And call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Savings based on cost of Consumer Cellular single line 1, 5, and 10 gig data plans with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest cost single line postpaid unlimited talk text and data plans offered by T-Mobile and Verizon January 2024. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. I am so excited to be joined uh, by Yegi Rezaian. She is a senior researcher at the Committee to Protect Journalists. She was born and raised in Iran. She worked there as a journalist for many years. And she was wrongly imprisoned by the Iranian regime for 72 days back in 2014 and now lives in Washington, D.C. Uh, Yegi, it's so great to have you on the show. I've heard you in my ears so many times because you, your husband, Jason, who I think listeners to this show, uh, probably know, uh, wrote this fantastic book, Prisoner, did a fantastic podcast called 544 Days about your experience. It's just wonderful to meet you. Thank you so much for having me. It's really great to finally be on the show because I know, as you said, Jason has been on the show multiple times and work with you guys uh, about the podcast. And and uh, I think at this point, he's like a frequent guest, like a regular guest. Um, he's on our most wanted list. He's he's the best. He's fantastic. Oh, thank so you. We appreciate um, it. Let me just open a small parenthesis and say my full name is Yegane, but everyone calls me Yegi. So feel free to continue as Yegi. But for professional reasons, Fairly. my byline is Yegane Rosaya. So. Fair enough. Sorry, I was, I was breaking into the familiar way too quickly here. That's on me. Mm-hmm. Um, so, <laughs> Yegi, so the, the, you know, we're here to talk about the, these protests that have been happening across Iran for weeks now. They started in response to the, the brutal treatment of this young woman named uh, Masa Amini by these so-called morality police. Can you help us understand what those creeps do? And did you and your friends have have run-ins with them? Sure. Let me start by saying that, as you said, I was born and raised in Iran, and it was during um, former president, President Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, that morality police shaped, and he was the one that created this group of so-called police in a sense that mm-hmm. they may not officially be part of the army or trained as police, especially the female ones, but um, they, are, they are part of the security forces in the country. And they they have their own apparatus, and there are times that they work in line with the judiciary and the intelligence ministry. 
but and and the the main police force in the country but there are times that they are completely uh autonomous and quite powerful to be honest and they have um different stations that again can sometimes be part of any police station in the country but they own their own stations as well um and I was arrested by them multiple times. Their job, the reason they call them morality police is that they were formed to make sure um, Iranian women, first and foremost, um, adhere to the to the Islamic compulsory hijab uh, properly or correctly. Mm-hmm. And by that mm-hmm. means they have to cover their hair and head completely so they can only show face, no hair. And for their body, they are supposed to wear um, a uniform, which we in Iran use a, a French word for it called manteau. And that is supposed to be below your knees. You cannot show butt or anything. It should be like <laughs> quite, quite long. If sorry. Pardon my language. It's okay. Um, so, um, yeah, and by that, that is supposed to be proper hijab. And their claim is that, um, and let's be honest, these are like very brutal forces. They do not have any mercy, and they were created to to police women, but there are times that they also I have seen by my own eyes that they arrest young boys as well if they wear like a t-shirt you are wearing like too hmm. much of a short sleeve or oh, no. or if men wear shorts or if they have boys have like fun haircuts they can also be arrested hmm. or if if there's like a special logo or something on their t-shirt um so those can be um problematic as well um and these people are, if we can call them, um, I don't even want to use the term animals because animals yeah. are are um, some of the nicest creatures on our True. planet. Um, these these people don't have any mercy, and um, they are very brutal. They arrest people based on their own records. They have beaten people at the time of the arrest so usually arrests are very violent they shove women they like lift you up from the floor and they like hit you anywhere on on the way shoving you to the police van and then they take you to their stations and their supposed claim is to to guide you to Mm -hmm. follow the islamic laws um more properly or better, but in a very forceful, violent way. I was arrested multiple times. In fact, I remember the last time I was arrested by them, it was like a couple of weeks before Jason and I got married in 2013. And uh, my sister and I were arrested. And then I ended up in, we ended up in one of their stations um, for quite a long time, for like a few hours. But when you are there, your heart is beating like boom, 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 because you don't know what's going to happen. They treat you really bad. They badmouth you from the moment they arrest you. They humiliate you. So their language is very humiliating. You can easily, if you have a little bit of um, resistance, you can be physically um, harassed, beaten, um, and and. Getting back to the sense that I said some of these people are not necessarily part of the trained army. Mm -hmm. Um, That's what in many cases causes 
plus the brutality causes these deaths because um, they are not really trained in terms of let's not hit her head so bang right. you know what I'm saying right. like right. Right. like an on un- like an intentional carelessness these people are not like american commanders or 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 special task force that yeah. are trained how to like take care of of their subject so in yeah. many cases those deaths are unintentional because of the carelessness but also they think they want to give a lesson by arresting right. one person to the rest of the society. They want to issue a message. So if we arrest this person, this young woman in front of a thousand others in the street violently, then those others will take their lesson and follow the hijab, compulsory hijab guidelines more um, accurately and properly. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's what happened to to the 22-year-old Mahsa, who was a Kurdish woman visiting Tehran. So she was arrested in Tehran in the capital, but she was originally from from Kurdistan and was on a summer vacation with her parents and brother, which is like so unbelievably wrong. It's awful. It's very awful. She's um, completely clear of any wrongdoing. She was just on a summer trip. Mm -hmm. I mean, so, I mean, knowing firsthand what these morality police are like knowing firsthand what the you know besiege militia members who you know drive around on motorbikes and just beat people indiscriminately just curious what you've made of watching these protests over the last couple of weeks these incredibly brave women you know pulling off their hijabs waving them burning them chanting death to the dictator i mean i saw today that the bbc report uh that the, the protests are expanding not just to other universities but into younger demographics like what has that been like for you watching that oh tommy i wish i was there um uh, but let me tell you um first of all it's heartbreaking to see the brutality and the, the amount of violence against people civilians iranian mm-hmm. people do not have access to any uh arm any any weapon it's not like america that random citizens can own guns um the law forbids citizens to own any weapons um but the truth is that um as much as it is very heartbreaking it is also heartwarming to see this younger generation of high school girls are so brave. One of the girls who was killed this past week was only 16 years old. Oh my God. Nika, um, Shakarami, and they are so brave. They are past our generation. My generation, when we came out to the streets in 2009, I think we were on our weaker side we were still on our um negotiable side we were willing to like give up if things got too scary but these girls are out and they are so brave and i'm so proud of them and i'm so proud of the boys of their generation for supporting there was one video of of university girls gathering in the in the yard of the university moving their headscarves mm-hmm. um waving them in the air and the boys created the circle of support around them to make sure that the security forces cannot reach the girls so as much as it 
watching the violence and brutality is very heartbreaking and painful and let's be honest unbelievable right yeah. you do not expect the police forces of your own country who are supposed to be your fathers your brothers your uncles beat you up like that do that to you it is yeah. also heartwarming to see how younger generation are fed up with the force and compulsory rules and laws that this government this regime is imposing on them under the pretext of religion and right. islam this is not right. islam islam is supposed to be um compassionate the merciful this is yeah. not any religion this is actually non-religion because in all religion we believe in loving each other fellow fellow loving mm -hmm. respect um compassion yeah. taking care of each other yeah. yeah you know you're talking about this sort of generational shift in the amount of courage that's being shown do you, i'm curious do you think that some of that might stem from the fact that Iranians are seeing these reports about the supreme leader maybe having health issues and they think there could be a looming you know, succession or change in leadership and there's like a moment to really do something. That can be true, too. But I honestly think it's not about supreme leader having a health issue and people are hoping that let's grasp this moment. That's part of it. But mm -hmm. I think um, this younger generation have witnessed their mothers who participated in the revolution and see how their revolution was hijacked. And then they see us, the generation who was first born after the revolution, and were always anxious and, and hated these rules and laws, but we were not let's be honest, I think strong enough to stand up for ourselves. And we were confused because the, the eight-year war with Iraq happened and we always we were somehow entangled in nuclear negotiations and, mm -hmm. and we never found it ourselves uh, and our strength. But these girls are the ones who have witnessed us, but they have also are they are also connected to the outside world. They mm -hmm. use social media. They are hungry to con be connected with each other, like from the north of the country to the south. But also they are 100% connected with the outside world. And they are the one who crave freedom and, and want to be um, themselves. Um, yeah. At the same time, they have suffered everything. They have suffered the situation of their mothers they have suffered our situation they have suffered economic pressure they have suffered mm -hmm. um lack of social freedom they they are the ones who, who and especially girls you know like anything that anyone in the country is going through it feels as if it's 100 percent worse for women because mm -hmm. on top of all the cruelty and 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 the violence and the dissatisfaction that a society is dealing with these girls have to wear that hijab and they're always condemned because of that and that is always like a stick above their head that the government can use and can beat them. So right. I think they are absolutely breaking all of those forced supposed norms. For all incredible. Of, like like in, like a combination of all of these. Yeah, it's truly really incredible. I mean, I saw, you know, the Supreme Leader was out saying, oh, my, my heart is broken over the murder of Masa Amini. 
But, you know, these protests, they were planned by the United States. They were planned by the Zionist regime in Israel. He claims there's Quran burning happening. I mean, I imagine that kind of response is not going to work with these women in the streets who know better and they know why they're there. But do you think there's a subset of the population, maybe like conservative men who will believe this message? Well, the truth is that Islamic Republic still has some support in the country. What the number of those supporters are is the difficult answer. We don't know if they are Mm -hmm. 10 million or if they are 20 million. We know they exist and they are not in majority. At this point, they are in minority. But the difference is that the regime has guns and and can use force. That's what's scary. But what Supreme Leader or any other officials of this regime comes out and says is not going to be listened by these young, powerful, smart, educated, um, well-connected to the outside world, younger generation, boys and girls, and especially girls. I think at that point, at this point, the regime has lost its legitimacy in terms of legitimizing their action. And obviously, they do not have any other excuse rather than blaming foreigners. And and who is better than United States? I always tell Jason that, mm, of course, they're going to say U.S. is their enemy because the bigger their enemy is, the bigger they are. So they choose the biggest enemy to show how powerful they are standing against this powerful like the most powerful country so it's uh, the enemy is always the united states england like two of the most like two of the most powerful um leaders of of the free world and obviously israel um it's like a very easy um enemy to have yeah. yeah so yeah Meanwhile, these young women in the streets are just, you know, kicking their ass up and down. So your your team at the uh, Committee to Protect Journalists have been sounding the alarm about the arrest and the detention of dozens of Iranian journalists. W- what do you think is happening there? Is this like a systematic effort to get them off the streets and prevent reporting of what's going on? Yes. Yes. It's definitely a very systematic um way of of silencing journalists, silencing any critical voice, and silencing any any flow of information. Because I want to tell you this, Tommy, Iran is this country that um, all media is state-run, okay? So mm-hmm. um, most traditional journalists who write for any platform like newspapers or magazines or 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 um, they runs um, IRIB, which is which is the Islamic um, TV and radio. Mm-hmm. If they disagree with the government or if they want to cover any of this news of protests and killing and beating, they cannot cover it in in the relevant media that they work for so many of these journalists as much as and as long as they were hired by those state-run media they use their social media platforms for reporting interesting so the government has a very systematic way of monitoring their social media platforms including twitter which is the first and foremost way of news circulation, despite being fully filtered in the country since 2009. Mm -hmm. Also Instagram, which until before this new wave of protest 
was the only um, freely accessible social media platform in the country and and the most used one. Um, and and by by monitoring these social media platforms, they attack journalists. Anyone who has a critical voice and says anything writes a report. Like one journalist was particularly arrested because he was from the smaller city in in um, south of Tehran uh, called Zanjan. And since the beginning of these protests, he started uh, using his Twitter account for publishing the names of the arrested people in his hometown and killed ones. So anyone killed and injured during protests on nightly basis, he would issue their names, like go around the city, get in touch with the family and publish their name. He was immediately arrested after two wow, nights of like doing basic that. reporting, basic reporting. So you can see that any journalist who has been arrested up until today, um, we have documented um, 36 uh, arrests of, of journalists, um, and, and one has been freed. We don't know the circumstances of, of that, that she was released, and one family got in touch with us and asked the name of their loved ones removed from the... Oof from the database because obviously for obvious reasons security issues yeah. so 35 journalists arrested uh, over uh, in less than three weeks and let's be honest this is not the correct number or tally of arrested journalists this is what we can get by the total near shutdown internet this is what we can arrest when uh, whatsapp doesn't work this is what we can get with as as iran is a black hole and getting any information out of it is very difficult i'm sure that yeah. the real tally is much higher and this also doesn't shock me and the rest of my colleague at cpj because at least since 2018 that i have been there iran like frequently, constantly landed in our category of um, most censored uh, countries, among the most censored and among the the biggest jailers of of journalists. So yeah, it's awful. It's, well, it's pretty remarkable that you guys were able to get any kind of information or lists or tally of this kind of activity. We owe this to really brave journalists who are trying to um, quietly be the voice of their their colleagues who are behind mm. bars. Credit to them. Credit to the protesters in there. It's it's amazing. So I mean, last question. Uh, you know, you're you know, th there's always a debate. I went through this in 2009 during the Green Revolution when I was with Obama about what the U.S or Western countries can or should do to support protesters, whether like average people should be talking about it, posting about it, knowing that the Supreme Leader is already trying to say that the US is behind this thing. Like, how do you think that Joe Biden should approach this or, or other Western countries? Like, what, what can they do or say that would actually be helpful? I want to start by talking about my fellow American citizens, um, like ordinary Americans that we've mm -hmm. I walk by them, let's say in Starbucks. Sure. Um, I want all my American friends of any background, religion or, or racial background support us as a group of 
American, like hyphenated Americans in diaspora. Um, talk about it, as you said, post it on their social media. Let the world know what is happening. Let the world know that because when the Afghanistan situation was happening, it was in the news all the time. Yep, Everywhere yep. was covering it. Um, my my American neighbor, whether they were African Americans or or Latino Americans or or other Americans, all knew about it. But I don't see the American people are talking about the Iran situation enough. Uh, they are not talking about how there's this country in the Middle East that the regime is suffocating people and took them hostage and they are beating them up in the street. So that's what I really ask from my American friends, American neighbors, American colleagues. In terms of the government uh, of, of the United States and other world powers or, or any government in general. I remember this debate we had in the streets of Tehran, like dying to see a little bit more support from President hmm. Obama at the time. And we were still very young and confused. We didn't we didn't know what kind of support we needed, right? Yeah, and yeah. let alone to to say that you guys should have been known by like then. But I think at this point what is severely needed is communications ways um okay people are suffocated because they do not have access to internet if they cannot communicate with each other and if they cannot communicate with the outside world these protests will die out i remember mm -hmm. in 2009 our protests and our power of assembly died as soon as they filtered Facebook. We could not hear of each other and the outside world could not hear of us. So after two weeks, protests faded away because we could not get in touch with each other. Hmm. Um, yeah. mm -hmm. Internet is dead in the country. Mm -hmm. Cell phones do not have internet. Um, I have not been able to talk to friends and family for over three weeks at this point. Wow. People are having a very hard time, like Iranians in diaspora have a hard time reaching out their loved ones inside. So imagine how a protester that has a video is trying so hard to, to get that video out. What I beg from any official in the US government or any other government is to help. And this help should be quick. Um, and having said that, I am not a technical person. So by quick, I don't know if it takes two weeks or if it takes two years, but the damage has already been done. What we need is communication devices, communication ways, internet. Uh, everyone inside Iran talks about Starlink. I have had friends who texted me saying, get us Starlink. They think Starlink yeah, can yeah. just jump on the, the roof of their house and start helping them. It's not like that. So first, they should not issue statements that are misleading because people are desperate and they believe Um Elon Musk tweeting that Starlink is now active in Iran. As much as it's very sweet, it's it's misleading. Yeah, Starlink yeah, yeah. is not active in Iran. People cannot reach it. And if anyone can take the required equipment, like dishes or anything, to set it up, that would be the government, right? Right, right, yeah. Normal Iranians cannot take those things in a luxury.
luggage back to the country. No, they cannot. Um, so communication, that's what we need help with first and foremost. And then um, policy issues. Let's be honest. We have been through this debate whether the family members of the regime should be in the U.S. or not. They should not. If a normal, smart, bright, intelligent, young, brave Iranian cannot get a visa from U.S. government to come to go to Stanford or Harvard, I do not want to see the children of, of this regime immigrating to Canada or Australia or United States. It's... yeah. We we are fed up with this. Every time we find out about one child of of there's this very controversial female official in Iran um, that is reported her son is here in the United States. And oh, that's really? unbelievably painful for I can only imagine, yeah. For for Iranians. So let's start with these two. <laughs> That's great advice. So talk to your friends about what's going on. Post on social media. If you work in the government, Joe Biden, I know you listen to this, uh, get some communications equipment over to Iran ASAP. And let's sanction these uh, Iranian officials who are leading the crackdown and stop letting their kids enroll at Stanford. (laughs) That seems like great actionable advice, if you ask me. Okay, I'm glad to hear that because if you you give me a green light, means um, hopefully at least a couple of them are doable, right? Let's hope. Let's hope. Yeah, you, thank you so much for for coming on the show. It's so un- incredible to talk to someone who you know has had to deal with the morality police, who was on the streets in 2009, who has uh, given so much uh, of your own life, of your husband's time, uh, working as a journalist, dealing with this regime getting caught up in, in the, the cruelty that emanates from it. And so I'm just incredibly grateful to you and for giving uh, really great advice to people. I really appreciate you and everyone on the show for giving me the platform to talk about the pain and, and the frustration and, um, and the plight of my people. And I hope there's a day that we can all get on on a plane and and land in Tehran and any Iranian who wants to come to United States can come and the two nations are again friends happily and um, and freedom is as back to my people Amen. and democracy thank you beautifully so said much. thank you so much bye bye thanks again to Yegi Rezaian for joining the show uh, thanks to everyone in Catalonia. Uh, sorry, you only got a 42-foot human pyramid and broke your arm. But uh, here we are. I mean, that whoever broke their arm probably thinks it's worth it. Yeah. 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 And check out World Corrupt. It's coming out Check out World Saturday. Corrupt. Yeah. Talk to you next week. See ya. Pod Save the World is a Crooked Media production. The executive producer is Michael Martinez. Our producer is Haley Muse. Saul Rubin is our associate producer. It's mixed and edited by Andrew Chadwick. Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer. Thanks to our digital team, Elijah Cohn, Phoebe Bradford, Milo Kim, and Amelia Montooth, who upload our episodes and videos at youtube.com slash media. Andy. 
Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is, and it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. Why are smart businesses graduating to NetSuite by Oracle? Because NetSuite eliminates the expense of multiple business systems by consolidating your operations together into one. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. NetSuite reduces IT costs because it lives in the cloud with no hardware required, so you can access it from anywhere. You cut the cost and headaches of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. Bringing all your major business processes into one platform improves efficiency, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move, so do the math. You'll see how you'll profit with NetSuite, too. And now, by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Just go to netsuite.com slash podcast25 for more information. That's netsuite.com slash podcast25.